0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for listening to the History of England. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David McLean. Once again, I have escaped from my 12th dimensional American prison. And in order to send me back there, you have to say my name backwards. I'm here to talk to you about Christopher Columbus. Now before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to explain three things. Specifically, why we're talking about Christopher Columbus, why we're not going to call him the discoverer of America, and why we're not talking about, say, somebody else. Now obviously, as an American, I have a certain invested interest in 1492 and the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and all that. For those of you who did not grow up in the States, I can tell you that over here, Columbus is a really big deal. So of course, as someone who is speaking English on the far side of the Atlantic, I think it's important that we talk about him, and I do think that he's one of the most important people in the Western world. Almost more than any other moment in Western history, in some ways even more than the beginning of the Renaissance, Columbus's voyage represents a moment in time that the world could simply never walk away from. His voyage is an incredible achievement, not just in terms of exploration and discovery, but simply in terms of endurance and an expansion of the human spirit. However, his voyage is also a subject that generates a great deal of controversy. Although in the U.S. we have a town, a university, a holiday, and a district named after him, his legacy is also one that many Americans are not wholly comfortable with, even though most of us have names and genetic backgrounds that originate elsewhere, and our entire family histories are indebted to him. One of the things that we can learn from studying history, and I'm sure our regular scheduled podcaster would agree with me on this, is that history is not always made by nice people. Not only that, sometimes people who have done absolutely awful things have come out on the other side of the history books looking pretty good. Augustus Caesar had Caesarian, the son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, killed as a threat to his power. He was just a boy. Thomas Jefferson had sex with Sally Hemings, a woman he owned when she was only 14. These are men who changed history, but you wouldn't necessarily want to have dinner with them, and the same can be said of Columbus. His arrival in the Americas was an accomplishment that was only really done for the benefit of Columbus himself. There have been many people who have been quick to point out, and they are right in doing so, that Christopher Columbus is not the discoverer of America. That honor goes to someone else, someone who got there long before he did. Now there might be some of you out there who are saying, Yes, yes, of course, Eric the Red, Leif Erikson, the Viking explorers who settled Greenland. They unquestionably came before Columbus and deserve credit and recognition as the first Westerners to ever set foot in the Americas. Well... Sorry, I hate to disappoint here, but Eric the Red and Leif Erikson are only really significant if you are looking to win a game of Trivial Pursuit, and the question, Name the explorer who came to the Americas before Christopher Columbus turns up when you land on a history square. Yes, Eric the Red did settle Greenland nearly half a millennium before Christopher Columbus even set foot in a boat. And yes, Leif Erikson did land in North America. There's even some evidence to suggest that he may have made it as far south as the United States but this is not particularly significant for the following reasons. First, because Eric the Red was not actually the first Westerner to land in the Americas. This is a fact that isn't really in dispute. All accounts of his journey to the West suggest that he was heading in that direction because he had heard stories of lands in the West. And indeed, it would have been surprising if he hadn't. Iceland is about the same distance from Greenland as London is from Glasgow. Someone had beaten Eric to the Americas. We just really don't know who. Now, if you feel that Eric and his clan are being slighted here, well, take comfort that they're in good company. They are, in fact, a lot of people who may or may not have been there before Columbus. The Polynesians, who seem to have come back with sweet potatoes, and the Chinese, who seem to have left behind a piece of pottery. There are stories about English fishermen, the Irish, ancient Egyptians, and The Greeks making the trip. There's even been a suggestion that Aboriginal Australians may have made the long haul across the Pacific even before the Clovis culture, which would have been impressive as there's not really a lot of evidence that they actually had boats. I'm not going to go into the specifics of each and every claim and their various degrees of credibility here, but simply put, the existence of the Americas may not have been the well kept secret that we usually think that it was. The second reason I'm not going to give the Vikings a whole lot of credit is naturally the Native Americans. After all, they were here first. Suggesting otherwise is perpetuating the exact sort of cruelty and stereotypes that have plagued Native Americans since, well, since around 1492, if you want to put a date on it. This is a fair point. Native Americans have a rich and thriving culture comprising originally some 500 different nations that covered two continents. Eric the Red built a village that you could have fit inside of a football stadium. These things really do not compare. The third reason is that Eric the Red landed in Greenland, which, let's face it, is Greenland. Perhaps the most ironically named landmass on the face of the Earth, it's covered by a massive ice sheet and even today boasts a population of just 50,000. It does not now, nor did it then, constitute a major landholding in North America. Eric the Red did not have the resources to exploit his close proximity to the North American coast, and he did very little to publicize the information that he had. By the time Columbus had rolled around, the tiny Norse community on the western side of Greenland had disappeared, leaving the western world in the exact same position that it had been in before on the edge of what seemed to be an endless ocean. Which brings us back to Christopher Columbus, the man who looked at the map and said, what would happen if we sailed off the edge? He was born, in as much as these things matter, in Genoa, in what we think of as Italy, in, as they say, the year of our Lord, 1450, the oldest of three sons of a wool merchant, whose fortunes would rise and fall over the course of Columbus's childhood. He would remain a Genoese citizen all of his life, but to talk about his Italian roots and his home life is a tad disingenuous. Columbus's first home was always the sea. Leaving school at an age that was much too young by modern standards, perhaps as early as age 10, Columbus would spend much of the early part of his life on a ship, exploring the Mediterranean's first and later the Atlantic Ocean. If Columbus's voyage to the New World was a movie or a TV series, then his early voyages would have been uh, those covered in some kind of spin-off media, like a comic book or a pulp novel. Although, indeed, his early travels were quite impressive. In his own estimation, he had traveled all of the lands of East and West. And while that certainly was not true, it certainly must have felt that way. By the age of 25, he had traveled to, among other places, the Turkish coast, the Azores, England, Ireland, and Iceland, where, in all probability, he heard stories of Eric the Red and the Icelandic settlement at Greenland. He had been to Greece and the Canary Islands, Spain, Portugal, and France. A good deal of these early years are shrouded in a fair amount of self-created myth, and some of the details are difficult to pin down. But it's abundantly likely that as he traveled up and down the Atlantic, he would have heard stories from other sailors. He would have learned about the exploits of Marco Polo, of Henry the Navigator, and perhaps most intriguingly, stories from sailors that either implied or directly stated the certainty of land on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Stories of carved wood and the bodies of men with strange faces floating in from the west were not uncommon, as were reports of land sighted by ships that had sailed off to the west. Now, it might be fair to point out that much of what Columbus heard was almost certainly apocryphal. It's also fair to point out that this is really beside the point. Whether or not stories like this were worth believing, what matters is that Columbus believed them, and more importantly, was inspired by them in the formation of his master plan, his grand design, as it's sometimes referred to. It would also have been during these early years that he gained an almost preternatural sense of navigation, and a knowledge of the Atlantic Ocean trade winds. Columbus would come to believe that these could be ridden all the way across the Atlantic to whatever lay on the other side. As it turned out, this assumption would be correct, although for many years no one was willing to let him test this theory. Although he had no education, Columbus was obviously intelligent, ambitious, charming, and had an ego the size of the moon. These were traits that would eventually serve him well. He would come to marry the daughter of an impoverished but respected nobleman, and although the marriage wouldn't last, sad to say, his wife would die young, it would produce a son and would give him the kind of contacts he would need to push forward. In here somewhere is the point where people like myself usually like to point out that Columbus did not prove the world was flat, usually in the smug sort of tone that suggests that this was something that was ever in doubt. It is true that no one really thought the world was quiet, flat for quite some time. Ancient Greek philosophers had advanced the idea of a round Earth long before Columbus came around, and even this may not be giving ancient peoples enough credit. Truth be told, it it might be fairer to say that in general people who thought about the Earth down through the ages probably fit into two categories. People who believed that the Earth was round, and people who didn't really think about it at all. Anyone who... lived back then did believe with an absolute certainty that sailing across the Atlantic was absolutely impossible. Exactly how and when Columbus came up with his plan to cross the Atlantic is difficult to say. Unlike my previous subject, William Shakespeare, Columbus had absolutely no problem with sharing the details of his life story, although this often turns out to be a double-edged sword as he has no problem inflating his own self-importance. According to the official version, Columbus was shipwrecked off the coast of Portugal and saw this as divine intervention and promptly took his plan to sail west to America, excuse me, to India, to the king and queen in Lisbon. And they promptly turned him down flat. Shipwrecks, by the way, are going to be a theme throughout this podcast, but we'll get to that in a bit. Now, I cannot overemphasize this. Turning Columbus down was the smart thing for the Portuguese to do, for a number of reasons. In the first place, the Portuguese were already fairly committed to getting to India by sailing around the Horn of Africa, and Vasco da Gama would reach India in 1498, something that Columbus would never do. In the second place, sailing into the West was extremely dangerous. Imagine for a moment that North America and South America simply weren't there. Even if you could sail straight across, the journey to Japan and China would cover half of the earth. This would more than likely mean the deaths of anyone involved. It's an expensive proposition, one that ran in the face of all common knowledge at the time. Which leads us to the third reason. Columbus was undoubtedly somewhat less than forthcoming about how he was going to do this and why it was going to work. Any knowledge he had about trade winds and lands past the Atlantic, he probably would have considered a trade secret and kept to himself. Fourth, and this is no small detail, Columbus didn't want much for his trouble. Just one-tenth of all the gold acquired, the title Admiral of the Ocean Sea, and to be made Viceroy Governor of any and all lands that he conquered. Enough wealth and power, in short, to make him the second most powerful man in the country after the king. So the Portuguese said no thanks, and Columbus took his business elsewhere. He would move on to Spain, who also said no for more or less the same reasons the Spanish did. However, in Spain, Columbus would prove to be persistent, pitching his idea of sailing west to almost anybody who would listen for over half a decade, making contacts and political inroads into the Spanish nobility, and doing research on his proposal. As with many intelligent but uneducated people, he seems to have fallen into the rather common fault of coming to a conclusion first and then looking for facts to support it afterward. In particular, he found inspiration from the Bible. Consider Revelations 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. This is not a particularly persuasive piece of evidence uh, today. But remember that this was 15th century Spain, a deeply Catholic country that had just thrown off the Ottoman Empire. Times were different then. I wasn't around to hear Columbus's stump speech, but it probably would have had a mix of zealotry, disjointed geographic factoids, opportunistic opportunistic expansion, and old-fashioned greed. Imagine if Neil Armstrong had believed that the moon was actually made of gold and populated by heathens eager to learn the gospel, and you have the general idea. Spain had only recently ended eight centuries of rule by the Moors, and subsequently had very little to lose. Eventually, with the help of a number of powerful and influential friends, Columbus would win Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand over to his plan through a combination of public and private funds, the soon-to-be-declared Admiral of the Ocean Sea would secure enough money for three ships and a crew of 90. Although it would not take nearly as long as securing the approval of the king and queen. Convincing a crew to head off into the great unknown would be an equally difficult challenge, one that probably would have involved a lot of braggadocio, promises of huge fortunes to be won, a few royal pardons, and possibly a threat or two. Chief among his seconds would be Martin Alonzo Pinton, captain of the Pinta. An excellent sailor in his own right, his support arguably would have done quite a bit to sway sailors to join the voyage. Unfortunately, before the trip was over, Pinton's presence would give the admiral some cause for dismay. They would sail first for the Canary Islands on August 3, 1492, where he would stop at Gamera to restock supplies before heading westward. He would be delayed there for several weeks before leaving on September 6, 1492, for points unknown. Judging by the opening of his ship's log, the admiral was in good spirits. Your Highness, as Catholic Christians and princes who love and promote the holy Christian faith and are enemies of the doctrine of Maume and of all idolatry and heresy, determined to send me, Christopher Columbus, to the above-mentioned countries of India to see the said princes, people, and territories and to learn their disposition and the proper method of converting them to our holy faith, and furthermore directed that I should not proceed by land to the east, as is customary, but by a westerly route, in which direction we have hitherto no certain evidence that anyone has gone. So after having expelled the Jews from your dominions, your highnesses, in the same month of January, has ordered me to proceed with a sufficient armament to the said regions of India, and for the purpose granted me great favors, and ennobled me thenceforth that I might call myself Don, and be High Admiral of the Sea, and perpetual Viceroy and Governor in all the islands and continents which I might discover and acquire, or which may hereafter be discovered and acquired in the ocean, and that this dignity should be inherited by my eldest son, and thus descended from decree to decree forever." Growing up, I had always been told that Columbus believed that he was heading toward the Indies, a catch term for India, China, and whatever else he might have found on the other side. It is true that he expected to find the lands documented by Marco Polo on his journey eastward, but it seems that he also was hopeful to have reached the kingdom of heaven on earth as described in the New Testament. This is an idea that seems a little silly now, but it would have been very real for Columbus, inflating his own sense of self-importance on a mission that was already loaded with it. Discovering the kingdom of heaven would have not only topped the discoveries of Marco Polo, but it would have put Columbus on a par with Moses and Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the trip would take five weeks and would not be as harrowing as you might think. Although he was traveling directly through the middle of hurricane season, hardly the best time to be heading towards the Caribbean, Columbus had a surprisingly good luck and good weather. Sailing west, he would initially make good progress before stalling in the middle of the Atlantic. The voyages would have been a balancing act. He would have needed to have been incredibly enthusiastic about their progress, always insisting that they were almost there, while at the same time lying to his crew about how far they'd actually gone. Columbus would use the techniques that the Portuguese had in finding land. He would use birds as an indicator that there was land nearby. As he closed in on the Caribbean, sightings of pelicans and large flocks of birds would convince him that he was closing in on dry land. On the 7th of October, land was spotted, and on the 12th, at 2 o'clock in the morning, Admiral Columbus landed in the Bahamas, most likely on the island Of San Salvador. For about 24 hours, everything was good. The natives that Columbus met were eager to meet the foreigners, whose sudden appearance must have seemed out of this world. Columbus was surprised at the nakedness of the natives and their lack of sophisticated weapons. They were quite friendly, offering gifts of food. Columbus and the natives seemed to work out a few bits of the native language surprisingly quickly. The admiral would famously dub the island San Salvador and would call the natives Indians, an ugly term that is so pervasive that five centuries later I had to back up the cursor sometimes to avoid writing it. Columbus believed that the natives would make easy converts to Christianity, and things went rather smoothly, until someone noticed that a few of the locals were wearing a few small pieces of gold jewelry— at which point Columbus apparently started rubbing his hands together and laughing maniacally. Right away, Columbus wanted to know where the gold came from, how much of it there was, and probably asked if anyone would mind terribly if he hauled away a nugget roughly the size of a Volkswagen. To make matters worse, someone suggested the subject of taking a group of natives back to Spain. Those who would be brought back to Spain would not go there for their own benefit. They would be taken there as slaves. It's important to point out here why exactly the crew of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria thought that they had the option of taking slaves, and why, for that matter, relatives of mine would eventually feel the same way. I'm sure, of course, that they felt that they were following in a certain tradition outlined in the Bible that went back centuries. African slaves had already made their way to the continent, and there was a man of African descent in Columbus's crew. It could be said that they weren't the only ones in their culture who thought that slavery was a good idea. That Columbus and his men were merely on the forefront of a wave that was coming, whether anybody knew it or not. I'm also sure that Columbus thought that he could get away with it because he was powerful, and the native Caribbeans came from another race and were poor. Although Queen Isabella would eventually put the kibosh on the idea of importing slaves from the Americas, it's still an ugly incident and one that puts a black mark on the entire expedition. The natives of the Bahamas didn't have anything bigger than a canoe for traveling through the open seas, but they had a fair working knowledge of the area, and they were happy to tell Columbus that a nearby larger island was the source of the gold. How this conversation went, I couldn't say, but I can't help but think that if I were living happily on the beach in the Caribbean and a foreigner showed up in a large ship waving a sword around and insisting that he needed to find some gold, well, then I probably would have told him that the gold was over on the next island as well. So Columbus pushed forward to Cuba, and he would triumphantly declare that it was the Asian mainland basically the moment he got off the boat. Now, it would be very, very easy to point out that Columbus was off the coast of Asia, that that idea was absolutely ludicrous. He was arguably further from the coast of Asia than when he had started. Marco Polo had described the cities of Asia as being opulent and impressive, and the villages of the Caribbean were neither of those things. Nonetheless, Columbus was fairly certain that he had arrived in the land of the rising sun and had fairly good reasons for thinking so. For one thing, he had greatly misjudged the distance to Asia, and in doing so had put it almost exactly where the Caribbean islands were. He figured that he should find land roughly 6,700 kilometers west of Spain, and he found it 6,850 kilometers west. That's pretty close, right? For another thing, where else could he be? He obviously wasn't in Europe or Africa, and the idea of two enormous continents that had gone largely undiscovered simply didn't fit into his imagination. This leads us to the third and perhaps most important reason that he thought he was in Asia. It was what he wanted to believe. It would be incorrect to underestimate the power of this third concept or to assume that as modern human beings were not guilty of this same kind of thinking from time to time. So having come to the conclusion that he was in Asia pretty much before he found it, Columbus went looking for some sort of shred of proof that he was in in the right place. And he found it in the birds, Marco Polo had described the parrots that he had seen in Asia. They were considered one of the hallmarks of his voyage, a symbol of the Orient and everything that it embodied. Well, the Caribbean is lousy with parrots, so that settled it. Columbus concluded that he had made it to Asia, and all of his dreams had been fulfilled. He had actually been had he actually been to Asia, he might have heard the words of Confucius who remarked that by learning through experience, uh, that was the most bitter way to gain wisdom. But we'll get to that in a moment. During his trip, Columbus would make a number of discoveries of new plants unknown to the Europeans, many of which would have a huge impact on the economy and the culture of the Western world in the centuries to come. Corn, tomatoes, cayenne, and bell pepper were all discovered on Columbus's first voyage. The salad, at the very least, would never be the same. Sweet potatoes and rubber were also discoveries of his, the latter of which the Indians had used to make a round ball, which they used to play an unrelated but suspiciously familiar game that involved moving the ball around the field using nothing other than your feet. Most significantly, from a purely financial perspective, would be a new species of cotton and tobacco. These two crops would become incredibly significant in the centuries to come, just ask Sir Walter Raleigh. These were incredible discoveries, but Columbus had eyes only for one thing, and that was gold. It was his lust and his desire for it that would ultimately push him forward toward Haiti. Although they had seen small pieces of jewelry in Barbados and Cuba, it became fairly obvious pretty quickly that neither island had large gold resources. This would have caused a large amount of strife among the crew who had been expecting the natives to be living in gold cities with incredible resources to trade. This tension would come to a head in the middle of November, and I doubt I can explain it any clearer than the words put down in the ship's log. Today, Martin Alonzo Pinzon in the Caravel Pinta, left the other two ships without having received an order and against the admiral's will. Pinzon acted thus through desire for gain, thinking that he would find much gold by following the advice of the Indians, which the admiral had taken aboard. And so Pinzon left without waiting for the others, without any excuse of bad weather, but only because he wanted to and many other nasty things he said and did to me. This doesn't seem to be considered an outright desertion, not as such, but obviously it is not a good sign. The phrase, and many other nasty things he said and did to me, sounds a little like a teenager complaining on their Facebook page about a fight they had with someone else at school. Pinzon and the Pinta turned south toward Haiti and better prospects. Columbus would have had very little choice but to follow. He landed on the Isle of Haiti and renamed it Little Spain, and although the country on the right side of the island is referred to by the Indian name, the island as a whole is referred to as Hispaniola to this day. Of all the islands that he would go to, it bore the closest resemblance to Spain, with mountains and a broad interior and natural bays, although it did not contain large amounts of gold, there was some, in large enough quantities to convince Columbus that he had found what he was looking for. There would be some debate by Columbus whether this was the island of Sipango, or Japan, or Sheba, as described in the Bible. An interesting debate, as the two locations would be several thousand miles apart, and one of them isn't real. Unfortunately, it was off the coast of Haiti that Columbus would lose his flagship, the Santa Maria, Running aground on a coastal reef, it went down in the middle of the night on Christmas Day, and for those of you keeping track, this is our second shipwreck so far. Columbus and his crew would survive, but there would be many of them, too many of them, to fit on the remaining vessel for the voyage home, and this would force Columbus to make an unfortunate decision. He would later claim that the sailors left on Hispaniola had been asking to stay. This might be true. If you've ever been to the Virgin Islands or the Florida Keys, you can appreciate the sentiment. However, the plain and simple truth was that Columbus had no choice. Unable to get the entirety of his crew back to Spain, he did his best to turn disaster into a triumph and promptly declared the empty beach that they were stuck on to be the colony of La, Nati- La Natividad. Forty of his men would be left to salvage what they could "'from the Santa Maria and explore the island. "'None of them would ever be seen again. "'Columbus would meet up with the Pinta "'and begin the long slog back home. "'While he had been lucky during the voyage out, "'the experience had had very little bad weather. "'The trip back would be a long and unpleasant haul "'through rough storms and rougher waves. "'The Nina and the Pinta would become separated again, either by storm or by choice.' A number of prayers were said, and Columbus would eventually throw a barrel overboard, the 15th-century equivalent of a message in a bottle. Several of the Indians he had brought along would die on the trip. Eventually, undoubtedly exhausted and low on resources, Columbus would pull into the port of Lisbon, meaning that the Portuguese would get knowledge of his exploits before the Spanish did, in spite of having smartly turned Columbus down a number of years before. He would finally return to Spanish soil on March the 15th and would be hailed the conquering hero. He would beat the Pinta back by just a few days and a moment, in a moment that would get shrouded in mystery, Martin Alonzo Pinzon, the captain of the Pinta, would die just a few days after returning home. Whether Columbus had had any hand in his death would be pur- purely speculating, but it did remove a man... <clears throat> who probably Columbus would have seen as a rival. He had returned with fruits, vegetables, natives, tobacco, stories, and probably enough gold to fill up half a jewelry counter at your local department store, and also one other thing that he wasn't aware of. It isn't usually mentioned in association with his legacy, but syphilis makes its first appearance in Europe, specifically in Spain, right around the year 1493. This is probably not a coincidence. Columbus's first voyage would set up the pattern for the three return trips he made to the Americas. All of his voyages would begin with a promise of incredible things on the horizon, initially important discoveries of historic significance, and a follow-through with a kind of messy and violent endgame that would leave the Admiral either unable to seize the moral high ground that he wanted or to exploit his findings in a manner that satisfied his enormous ego. In the end, he would always find himself back in Spain, reporting that he had not found the Far East, but that he believed it to be just a little farther over the horizon. Columbus's second trip to the Americas would come just eight months after his first he would return with seventeen ships and over a hundred excuse me over ten times the number of people who came with him the first time on the second trip he would explore Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and the Virgin Islands all for the first time. He would also return to the interior of Hispaniola, finding at long last a large gold reserve. The first settlers from Europe would also come with him, however. It was also during the second voyage that the first mention of a European sexually assaulting a native woman is chronicled, and war would break out between the natives and the Spanish. The settlers would face disease and starvation, and Columbus would ultimately bring back five hundred Native Americans, all as slaves. They were not provided with clothing, and most would die either on the trip over or shortly thereafter. On his third trip, Columbus would land on the mainland for the first time. It would have been very, very hard at this point to continue believing that you were anywhere near India. Even the Spanish could tell that this wasn't another island like Cuba or Hispaniola. But Columbus seems to have skirted this issue by declaring South America to be the kingdom of heaven, although it's not clear that anybody else was fooled. He would also put forth in his journal the theory that the Earth was not actually round, but slightly wider at the equator, a fact scientists would not be able to confirm until the year 1959. These were significant events. Also significant was that during his absence between journeys, the Spanish settlers in Hispaniola had moved to the southern part of the island, where they had founded the city of Santo Domingo, today the oldest city continuously habited in the Americas. While they were there, they had split into two groups, those led by Columbus's brother Bartholomew and a rebel group who opposed his rule. Civil war broke out, and in the fallout that ensued, Admiral Columbus would be arrested. The discoverer of the new world was brought back to the old one, in chains. By the time of his fourth journey, Columbus was a little strange. He had taken to calling himself Christ's body, and signing his letters with a strange rune. This is a podcast, so I can't show you a picture of it, but if you want to picture that symbol that Prince signed his albums with in the mid-90s, well, I can't stop you. Still, in spite of all of his faults, his name still held some sway, and he was given a commission of four ships and a command to explore the lands to the west. Columbus would make record time in his fourth crossing— making it to the New World in just 18 days. Having been refused port at Santo Domingo due to his problems there in the past, he pushed on to Central America. In spite of failing health, during the fourth voyage, he would survey the Central American coastline, landing in North America for the first time, becoming the first man to see five continents. In terms of pure personal achievement, this is a moment equal to the feats of Edmund Hillary, and Neil Armstrong, although ironically Columbus did not realize what he had done. While in Central America, he would come within just a few miles of making yet another historic discovery, coming just shy of the Pacific Ocean. This would be the point where the long wave of exploration so embodied by one man seemed to crest and fall back. Columbus may have had practical reasons for not moving on to the Pacific, but he may have had personal reasons as well. If there was anyone who knew for certain that Columbus was nowhere near a water route to Asia, it would have been a Central American Indian. Seeing the Pacific would have proven that he was, in fact, truly lost all along. Even without the discovery of the Pacific, Columbus's fourth voyage would have been historic, provided the story ended there. But unfortunately, it doesn't end there. During his return voyage, violent storms would damage his ship while off the coast of Cuba, and Columbus would end up marooned on the Isle of Jamaica. And for those of you who keeping a shipwreck tally, that makes three. He would be stuck there for over a year, His rescue would be held up by the governor of Hispaniola, who had apparently not forgotten the messy business of the third voyage, and it would take until 1504 before he would finally be rescued and returned to Spain, never to set foot in the new world again. When talking about the entirety of someone's life, it's easy to get to the end of the story and remark how much the world seemed to have changed by the time you get to that bitter end, And in Columbus's case, the change must have seemed incredible, and so much of it had happened because of him. A new colony and a regular trade route had been established across the once impossibly wide Atlantic Ocean. New things were making their way across the Atlantic. New cultures had been discovered and, sad to say, exploited. Columbus had a legacy that he must have been proud of, but it also seems clear that he felt as though the world was passing him by. He would spend the last few years of his life in Spain trying to win favor and audience with the royal court in the hopes that the titles that he had won during his travels would be restored or acknowledged. He sounds a little like an actor who is past his prime and trying to make a comeback while signing autographs at whatever the 16th century version of a comic book convention would be. Until his dying day, he was insistent that the territory he had found was just off the coast of China, although by the time he died it was fairly well known that South America extended much farther than it originally had been believed. Columbus's insistence that the land he explored was Asia was undoubtedly routed in a desire to protect his legacy. Ironically, it would only detract from it. The exploration of the Americas had begun. The colonization that had begun at Santo Domingo would eventually spread from Newfoundland to Chile, creating a race for territory and resources. And one of the biggest winners in that race would be Great Britain. The days of the sun never setting on the British Empire would be just ahead. That's it for this episode of the History of England. I am David McLean, and I'm still the author of Dragon Bait, which is available from audible.com, amazon.com, and of course amazon.co.uk, among other places. You can also read my dog about my blog at mydogisgross.tumblr.com. I'd like to thank the amazing Mr. Crowther for letting me borrow his podcast again. David, next time I'm in London, I owe you a pint. If you have any questions, I can be reached at mclean.dave at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody.